basis of the self is not thought, but suffering, which is the most fundamental of all feelings. While it suffers, not even a cat can doubt its unique and uninterchangeable self. In intense suffering, the world disappears, and each of us is alone. Milan Kundera wrote that. None of us can control what the world visits upon us, but nor are we defined by it. Each day we carve out anew the path of who we are by how we act. The filmmaker Amy Berg has made a career of telling intimate and moving stories of abuse and trauma. Her 2006 film, Deliver Us From Evil, about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, made her professional reputation and was nominated for an Academy Award. In her recent film, Phoenix Rising, she chronicles the story of actress Evan Rachel Wood's decision to reveal the domestic violence she suffered at the hands of Marilyn Manson. It also tells the story of her campaign to change the statute of limitations for domestic abuse in California. Berg made the film, she says, to let people know they are not alone. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Amy Berg. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, it's my honor. Thank you uh, for having me. So uh, I've got. I'd like to start with um, before diving into to Phoenix Rising, which I'd like to uh, chew on in detail. Um, the question I have for you is: Do you choose your films, or do your films choose you? Ooh, good question. Um, it is a bit of a hybrid. I would say that it's like probably about 60-40 in terms of things that come to me versus me choosing my own project in my career. Um, so yeah, so there's um, Deliver Us From Evil was something that I kind of found on my own and followed for many years before it was a film. Um, and uh, the film I'm currently working on um, is similar. And I have a couple other shows that I kind of wanted to do and developed myself on my own, but I do get offered a lot of interesting projects and sometimes um, I take them, sometimes I don't. So it just, I guess it just depends on the film. Let's, let's, let's even step back further, like start with the story of Deliver Us From Evil and kind of how that how you come to that story and how you end up transforming that into the astonishing film that you made thank you um that story started when i was working as a producer at cbs news in los angeles um i had been covering um some of the boston stories and then kind of branched to los angeles um some of the stories that happened in the la archdiocese uh and found my way to Oliver O'Grady, um, and I, I got his information and just started reaching out to him. And I spoke to him on the phone for like a year before he agreed to be in the film. Um, and I did want to branch out from short form because, like, my short form stuff for CBS sometimes I would make like a twenty-five minute piece, and it would end up four minutes. So I decided to branch out with that film that was the one and um it turned into like you know another two years after that i had a film that i was really excited about and took it to the la film festival um and that kind of launched my documentary career 
You know, one of the things that I think is so striking about that film is the access and the interview and his presence in it and candor. And I'm curious, you know, because that's a fundamental um, genius, I think, that's kind of required in these films is getting access to the people winning the trust, whatever the social engineering is that's necessary to do that, and then getting an authentic performance of self from somebody. So I'm curious, you know, the, the origin story of Deliver Us From Evil and specifically the kind of, you know, the the uh, the wooing and, and whatever it was that was necessary to get O'Grady. Okay, so that... Um when I was making Deliver Us From Evil, well, before I started making it, I was speaking on the phone to Oliver O'Grady and recording phone calls. He had agreed to let me use his voice. Um, so we spoke for like a year. And about a year after we started speaking, um, the Pope died. And um, uh, Cardinal Roger Mahoney was photographed on in first class asleep like on the LA Times front page or something and I sent him that article and I remember he was so angry that Cardinal Mahoney was sleeping in first class when he was like kind of in in his mind he was like in prison in Ireland in Dublin um, right. so he said that he would agree to go on camera but I couldn't show his face so I flew to Dublin and this is like the very beginning of my film my film career and I was a big fan of dogma films I don't know if you're familiar with the dogma mm -hmm. filmmaking yeah they were brilliant yeah I, lo I loved uh, Vinterberg yeah, yeah. And, and, and the lot totally totally Vinterberg and and Lars von Trier um, and so I found this incredible agent named Marie Louise Vergost who handled all the cinematographers from Denmark and I met Jens Schlosser who was my DP for Deliver Us From Evil and I told him about the constraints and he's like don't worry we've got this we've got this and so we met in Dublin. We got this incredible location, the Dublin Castle. And we put Oliver up, like way up high. And we had a long lens. And I was sitting in front of him in this tiny little pew on the balcony. And after about three days, um, he just said, I, he, he basically said that we could, you know, we could get a little closer. And he was comfortable enough to go on camera. And so that was when we started kind of really getting intimate shots of him and then we followed him around the city and that the famous shot of him like talking about a little boy as a little boy walks by um, yeah it's amazing it's an so amazing yeah that shot. was the progression of that well and you know it's so interesting because it's in in docs you know we're so often forced to if you fight the constraints they become shackles right if you embrace them then they become these tools and like editorially i, I think you know what's so um amazing about the the start of that film you know that opening scene is so beautiful and then as he began to you know begins to talk the like close-up of his eyes and that three-quarters shot and the close-up of his hands and there's this this um i guess cognitive dissonance between what you're seeing and the intimacy of what you're hearing so so talk about the kind of crafting of that because it was so elegant and sort of pulled you in in such a fascinating way yeah well he what struck me and jens um was just his mannerisms were such nervous mannerisms and his you were you said earlier performance we don't usually like to call it a performance when it's like a character in a documentary but it is a performance and especially with o'grady it was definitely he definitely liked the camera and he allowed us to kind of follow him around showing us what a classroom looked like showing us what he would do and just kind of 
emoting what certain instances felt like and we were able to capture those with tight shots and wide shots and like you know we were we then had access to his face we were able to like work around that situation um but that was always really important to me to feel to feel his nervousness because I was like nervous sitting in front of him obviously for my own reasons just talking about what we were talking about but also just watching how he was like biting you know like ripping his nails biting his nails like he just had such a nervous energy that I wanted to make sure we captured that in this kind of stoic person that he was trying to portray. Yeah, the visual elegance of that I think is 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 really striking because and it is funny, right? There like there is that sort of performance as kind of a dirty word in the doc business, but the truth of the matter is it, it is a performance of self that you are soliciting from these people, right? And it's making it as authentic to who they are in this constructed environment. How do you handle with him, you know, the sensitivity of the material and the questions? Like, are you sort of circling, circling, or are you kind of, you know, going right in? Like, how are you, how are you doing the dance in terms of, you know, getting to the most sensitive material with I mean, him? I had a year of comfort, you know, in terms of from his perspective, he was comfortable talking to me, and I had a year of, like, knowing where he was coming from. I mean, like every predator that we know about, you know, today, Oliver was a victim of sexual abuse when he was a child. And, you know, there was no surprises there. Um, There were no surprises there. So I I guess I just kind of, um, I went for it, but I went for it in the way that I like to storytell. I needed the whole scope of the issue. So it wasn't like I just asked him about his abuse on the first day. We probably spent two or three days talking about the culture, the community, his role, what he liked, his own childhood. We talked about everything before we got to like the specifics and it was still really hard to talk about the specifics. I mean, I had a 11 year old son at the time and it was like really difficult for me to like hear these things in person. It was one thing over the phone, but just like being in front of him, it was, it was difficult, you know? Talk about that because it's, you know, it's something that I, you know, that I've experienced too, the, the, the kind of compartmentalization necessary between your professional life and your life as a human being. And particularly when you're dealing with these stories of kind of intense uh, trauma and horror in a fundamental way, what do you do to kind of uh, not let it stick to you when you go home and, you know, maintain your sanity and, and sort of centeredness? I mean... I always, it's for me, like, I don't like to watch horror movies. I just, I get really freaked out. And so it's kind of the same thing I do when I'm watching a horror movie is I remind myself that this is a film. This is a story. We're telling a story right now. So I try to stay in the kind of how am I going to tell the story mode in my brain. Um, But I'm not going to lie to you. It's, It's very difficult. And it gets more difficult. I thought it would get easier because I've become more desensitized to certain things. But it gets more difficult because we store trauma in our brains. Now we know that based on like all the hallucinogenic studies they've done recently. And we do. And so it's there, you know, it's like we carry it around and um, it accumulates. And so I, I try to stay distant as best as I can, but I also want to be empathetic and I want to like really understand who this person is so that they're comfortable enough to like to share with us. So um, it's a it's a balancing act and you can't like shirk it all off for sure. It is a radical act of empathy, you know, that that sort of struck me, you know, in terms of your um, 
and, and it's the body of work, I, th- I think, in general. But like, it, it's really noticeable in that first film where you're having you're having to kind of engage without judgment in the moment, and then you're having to sort of still construct, in some way or another, kind of a. Uh, if not a prosecution, at least an illuminating of the truth. Talk about balance, finding the balance there, and how you how you do that, and what your kind of personal ethics are. Well, I don't. I never um, judge anybody when I'm interviewing them um, or when I'm editing the film. I just you can't you can't. I mean, this is my goal as a filmmaker has always been to like to explore the gray areas and not just stick with the black and white headlines that we read in the news. And um, so. I'm not, the nuance and the details are the story. So I don't just, I don't judge those things. They're, they're facts to that person. So, you know, you have to take them for what they are, even if it's a a misremembering of facts, it's their, it's their narrative. So I just try to stick with what feels authentic and it feels like the only way to tell it. Good segue, I think, to to Phoenix Rising, and and tell us about the you know the origin of that film, how that how that comes to you, and and you know what's the what's the story of how it comes into the world. Well, um, Evan Rachel Wood, I've known her for probably a decade at this point, um, and I had just finished making the case against Adnan Saeed, and she was kind of uh, she was in the midst of her journey. Um, she had testified in Sacramento for the Survivor's Bill of Rights bill. Um, And she was feeling frustrated that there was no avenue for what she was trying to do um, in the legal um, lane. So she had compiled and documented her abuse pretty well. And, And, you know, we were talking a little bit about trauma earlier and how to deal with trauma. And I just want to point out that Evan, um, I've documented a lot of survivors in my in my career, and Evan has done a lot of trauma work. She's very, um, she's far down the lot the lane mm-hmm. in that avenue, um, and she, uh, so she's almost like I mean she's it's still there. She's obviously this is something that none of, of us can ever erase, but she's really um, speaks a survivor's language and. Um, which made this film a little bit easier to make, I have to say, because she's very evolved in her process. Um, so she had um, gone through the journey of documenting everything that happened, and she showed me what happened. Um, and we decided we wanted to make kind of more like, I wanted to make a story about Evan's journey to change the laws in California to get rid of the statutes. Mm-hmm. That was really the goal about, you know, to talk about domestic violence and this um, statute that she was trying to extend. Um, but in documenting that part of the story, Evan decided to come out and name her abuser, which was a really important part of her process and her growth. And so. And was the film a catalyst for that, or was it sort of organically happening anyway? To and, or to what extent can you parse, you know, the the effect of the film on the decision? I would say it's probably just a blend of what you're what you're asking. I mean, I think that she wasn't planning on going out publicly on the internet when we started making the film, but she was planning on talking about her abuse in the film. So the film would have brought his name forward at some point, obviously. Um, but I think it was like the pressure was on because there were a lot of other 
victims of his abuse and there was just a lot swirling around because I know they were speaking with investigators and I, I think it was just bubbling to the point where she didn't want to keep it in anymore so she told us in advance because it was obviously an important part of the documentary um, and I yeah I, I was really happy that we had that element because I feel like seeing the pain of a survivor who decides to go public is really something I hadn't seen before. You, you just usually see it on Twitter, that, you know, somebody mm -hmm. names their abuser publicly. And I, I thought that her journey was so relevant to this conversation. Um, so it was, it was really empowering to watch that and the release that came after it. And, and talk specifically about the, the sort of, you, you know, the revelation of Manson and, and, and what that does, you know, being, being the abuser, um, and what that does to you as a filmmaker, the, the sort of knowledge of, okay, this is who it is. Now I have to contend with this piece of the story and, and, um, and how that affects the movie. Well, I knew it was Manson from the moment that she brought the story to me. That was all part of her investigation. So, so yeah, so I knew that. I just, I didn't want to make a film about Marilyn Manson. That was not you know, Brian Werner. I didn't really want to make a film. I wanted to make a film about a woman changing the law. I wanted to make the Aaron Brockovich story um, because mm -hmm. that's who I saw Evan as at the time. Um, and I still see her as that. I mean, she's led this charge in a way and brought a new conversation to um, the policymakers, which is what's important here. But um, I, I just, I, I really, it, that, I knew that taking on the Marilyn Manson part of the story was like, it, it should be its own film. There's so much there. And after reading his book and seeing all the statements that he's made publicly and every person that I talked to that had ever met him had been to his house and left in an uncomfortable way and seen these things. There was a culture of knowing this was going on, but not saying anything about it. So it just seemed kind of scary, to be honest with you, because it's like, why do all these people that I totally respect know that this is going on but they're afraid to say anything publicly it was it was you know it was strange it was kind of like the brian singer story in a way where it's just like it's we know this culture is exists we know that children are being exploited but it's part of hollywood so let's just look the other way so it's kind you know i guess there's been a comeuppance since then and thank goodness for that that you know people are liberated from like the the power structure that is allowing this exploitation to continue. How large does the celebrity quotient um, factor into this for you? Because in a way, it, like it's a way that it gives you a spotlight and a megaphone when you're dealing with folks like Evan and Manson. It the, like suddenly you have a kind of an interest level and an audience engagement that you might or might not have with um, somebody whose name you don't know, you know, going into it. And, and how do you and how do you feel about that? And how did you contend with that? In the yeah, it's a really good question, because since the film has come out, we had the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And it's just suddenly it's yep. like the things that people assumed were only happening in West Memphis, Arkansas, or, you know, wherever it was are actually happening in celebrities' lives. And it's being, you know, displayed publicly and dirty laundry is out for everyone to, to you know, to see and deal with. So um, how did I deal with that? Um, I just assumed 
this was my own naivety is I just assumed that it was just going to be like any other story. I didn't realize mm -hmm. um, the element that Evan was contending with. I, I saw it on her phone. I saw it in her investigation, but I didn't realize how brutal the armies that follow these celebrities are. I just, I had no idea how cruel people could be and like how, how, you know, victim shaming at that level, how, you know, how devastating it could be. So I guess it was a huge eye opener for me because this has all come to a head in the past five years, I would say, when we started seeing this on Twitter. And it's just, it's scary. People find, you know, find her address. People find people that have spoken out about Manson's address and they start receiving mysterious packages. They start getting strange things delivered to their houses. Um, I, I had a personal experience where, where somebody cracked into my Amazon account and started ordering horror films in the middle of the night. And I, I was panicking because like my parents' address was in my Amazon account because I send them stuff. And so I, it's, it is like a whole another level of fear and intimidation that exists out there. Talk about it's a good, that's a good sort of um, you know point, which is the dangers involved in telling these kinds of stories because it's not just the subjects. Like you are in some way or another painting a bullseye on your back by wading into the middle of the fight as the filmmaker, so to speak. And um, how big of a concern is that, and how much of a deterrent is it for you to you know to 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 tell these stories? And how do you deal with it? I mean, that? it's just become more of a deterrent in the past five years, I would say. It's, I never used to think about this because I didn't have a, I get Twitter's the kind of, it's the game changer, I guess, Twitter. I mean, it was one thing to have like Facebook and Instagram where it was kind of, it was just kind of more intimate and less stocky in my estimation. But suddenly this Twitter scope of, um, threats and, and danger is it's it's kind of the next wave and I, I it has made me pause a little bit more I mean I have always taken on controversial stories and I have really good lawyers and I always stick to the law and make sure that everything is sound in all of my films and ethics are you know very important obviously um, but yeah there's there's a different deterrent now so I'm not sure you know what is it about Twitter that that makes it such a sort of, um, I, I guess, a weapon? And uh, like, why do you think it has been so impactful? Well, I think um, I think I really don't. I'm not a big tweeter. I'm not like a big Twitter person. But I just think that more people have access to you in a different way. That's it's that's what it feels like. I mean, now with Elon Musk and Twitter, I don't know, we're in a whole nother chapter. I've, I've seen a lot of people just deleting their Twitter accounts in the past week. Um, but I don't know, it just it seems like it's so pointed and short and easy to slander somebody there. And you can hide behind it. There's so many fake accounts. And it's just I, I don't know, I, it's, I'm not I guess that's my answer. I'm, I'm, I'm not like I'm not studying it you know, aggressively, but it just seems like it opens things up differently. Um, let's talk a little bit about the construction of Phoenix Rising. You know, there's an interesting blend of elements that you're using, right? There's uh, at least two interviews that I saw, you know, that are the sort of sit down interviews uh, with Evan. There's, you know, this 
complex collection of archival materials from the childhood home videos to the films that she appears in to the investigative materials. Um, and then there's also the verite scenes, right? So when they're going to, um, you know, the legislature and like talk about when you're setting out to do a film like this, how are you budgeting and planning? Okay, it's going to be X amount of shoot days or how much is verite, how much is interview and what's the construction of it? Well, this was um, designed to be a film. So we, I, I'm, I don't have a big company. I have a really small company. There's, there's just a team of three. So I don't have like all the expenses that need to go into these budgets. So we can, we put most of the money on screen, which is great. I love the flexibility of being able to shoot 30 or 40 days rather than 10. So we, I mean, we, we started mm -hmm. out making a film. Um, it quickly became obvious that it, in the edit, that it should probably be two or three parts because of coming out and the backstory was as important as the forward story to understand the culture. And one element that you didn't mention was the animations, which I, which was another. Topic. Yeah. Well, I want to oh, get okay, to we'll that, that for that sure. Next. Okay. But, um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, we knew that we were, we had a huge archive. We knew we had a lot of material to go through and to access. Um, so we had a good budget. HBO gave us a great budget to make the film. And then we decided to make it into two parts. And I think they helped us when we needed to like extend things a bit. Um, so, so it was, it wasn't a challenge in that way. I mean, I, I, it was, it was funded and we had enough days to shoot. We had enough weeks to edit and we had a huge archive. We had a small team that made this film, a small army and of women. And it was, it was pretty tight all the way through. And, you know, going into it, do you have a sense of, okay, you know, here are the, like the elements that I need and what order they are? Like, do I do, when do I do the sit down interview? What scenes am I going to shoot Verite or how much is that plan evolving on the it's fly? It's evolving on the fly. I mean, we started with a couple of sit down interviews and then I was in regular contact with Evan throughout the entire production. Sometimes she was shooting Westworld. When she was available, we were just with her. We would follow her around and... Um, this was her life outside of her job. So it was, it was, mm -hmm. we were there. All consuming. Yeah. Right. And how long are you shooting for? We shot for about, I would say about a year. And are you cutting while you're yes. shooting? Are you, yes. uh, and, uh, and so what's your team? Like, cause that, that's an, and I want to get to get back to the animation in mm -hmm. a second. Cause they're very, very mm -hmm. striking, but just in terms of understanding, you know, the way you work and how you go about mm -hmm. it, the production company is essentially a team of three, what you're saying. And then you're building it out per production yeah. as you go. Yeah. 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 So we had like, we had a producer, we had an AP, we had an editor, an assistant editor and a post supervisor. And that was the team. And then we hire the DPs as we shoot. Um, so it's a small team. And how deeply are you personally going through the archival to determine, okay, what goes in, what goes out? How much do you leave it to your editor? Or what's your, what's your process? Um, we had, there were three of us that went through the archive. Um, I forgot to mention, I'm sorry, Kirsten Sheridan, who was a co-producer on the film, was a genius at like looking at all of the Manson archive because it was really tough material and my editor Miranda Yusuf who's also just such an incredible human um I, you know I should say I should say this because a lot of people are dealing with this now and making documentaries about traumas we had a team at um Columbia who was helping us with like trauma counseling when we needed it so um 
because it was disturbing material and my, my editor especially was having to like look at things that were really um, difficult to uh, unsee. So we, um, we kind of divided and conquered um, and got a lot of Evan's personal archive from her family and we went through everything. Um, we chose the pieces that made the most sense in the story that Evan was telling. So it kind of just, it, it, there were a lot of things that we couldn't use that we wanted to use because it just would have taken you off the path. So that's how it goes. You look at everything and then you kind of still have to follow the narrative that you've chosen. So, yeah. Yeah, I was imagining all of the different lanes that you were examining along the way, because, you know, even if you look at something like her relationship with her parents or specifically with her mom, like there there are all these fascinating rabbit holes in the story. And yet you 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 to make it a driving narrative that leads to the real change in the world, you are um, making these very sort of deliberate choices to channel it on, on a narrative. Right, right. And that's just, that's a part of every film. So, you know, you just have to kind of make these choices and there's, you know, there are 20 different ways you could skin the cat, but we just chose to do it a certain way. And that's just, and that's the story we ended up telling. And um, it was in Evan's words, it was her perspective, but it spoke to multiple, you know, survivors that had been for the same thing. I mean, the stories yep. were the same with every person. Um, durations might have been different, but everyone had the same stories of, you know, how they were treated when they were spending time with him. Let's talk about the animation and sort of when you decide to come to, you know, that being a vital storytelling element and what are the considerations that go, who are you working with? What's the design that goes into it? How do you come to it? Well, um, we, art was a big part of both of their lives, obviously. Um, and we really, you know, I feel like Evan, the way she grew up as like a Hollywood actor, um, kind of in a glass castle is how she described it. Um, her childhood and like, and how we develop our ideas about who we are as whatever as children as young adults as as adults um a lot of that was formulated through her like her childhood experiences in literature and film and we we wanted to bring a visual to that so um we decided to hire two artists one there was also uh manson is it is it he's a well-known artist as well and he's he's been documenting his women through his art it was all kind of right there so we just decided to have mm -hmm. these two perspectives to tell that part of the story um and it was really another way to kind of stay out of some of that painful um just the you know the painful imagery and the painful archive there's it it was it kind of was a little bit of a a breather for us and for the audience, I think, to like see how these things played out in her childhood. And um, so Nicoletta Ciccoli, who did all the um, young Evan paintings, um, really helped us to bring Evan to life as a young girl in a way that was more like insular, I guess. The choice of the, the kind of like storybook um design of it uh, is is incredibly impactful um and so are you working from 
when you're doing the animations of those, are you working from stills that are individually painted stills or is that like, how are you constructing the imagery? Yeah, we, okay, so Angelique George was our um, head of animation. And so Nicoletta would give us the slides, the frames, and, and then Angelique would animate them. And it was a whole process. We would, we pick the images based on the stills, the frames basically, and then Angelique would bring them to life. And then we, you know, we were all giving notes back and forth. Um, but Nicoletta had done this once before. Um, so we had a good reference from a YouTube video mm -hmm. that we found. Um, so yeah, it was a really, really interesting process. And I hadn't been doing a lot of animations in my career. I, I did, the first time I did it was really Phoenix, I'm sorry, it was uh, the case against Adnan Saeed. And I just started kind mm -hmm. of really seeing how impactful um, a, a venture to the past and bringing something to life can be for the audience and for, you know, storytelling purposes. So I'm really behind it. I know a lot of people don't like it. And we got a lot of, you know, love and hate mail from that, from, you know, this, from Phoenix Rising especially. But I thought it was really important. And Evan did too. So I think it's, it's really important to like be able to visualize those moments. What was the discussion around, I imagine the like octopus vagina sequence, mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, eventuated a lot. I was imagining yeah. the like creative discussions as you guys are, are, are sort of, right. you know, doing that. Like, what, how do you come to that? And what, what's the discussion well, around Well, I that? mean, for me, Evan and I spoke a lot about how sex education formulates your susceptibility to abuse. And like, to me, this is where Gen Z is ahead of the game. I'm really excited to say that like, sex education is being talked about now, finally. But when I was growing up and when Evan was growing up, it was not, it was taboo to talk about this. And so we wanted to really emphasize those points because she learned that she was okay by finding like a porno mag, which is such a great mm -hmm. visual. And I wanted that to be in the film. Um, yep. And there is, you know, there is a precious way that sexuality is handled in like literature and movies. And then there's like the scary way. And we wanted to show that this was a blend of lack of education and being exploited and susceptible. So it worked, you know, that was and it might be difficult for some people to see that playing out. But I mean, that is the truth is like educated girls are armed with something that uneducated girls are not armed with as it pertains to sex. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a striking and powerful um, sequence in general. And it sort of, I think the animation, like you can see how effective that is as a tool in that discussion, right? It's it sort of, it's, it's, baked in, it's baked into the discussion in a fundamental way. But I thought that was very, very powerful and elegantly handled. What about editorial kind of, um, not control, but uh, are you screening for Evan along the way? How are you sort of contending with all that? And you, like your need for objectivity versus, you know, her desire to um, tell the story that she wants to tell? How do you, where do you, how do you find the line with that? Well, we, we screened for her towards the end and we took her notes. I mean, she had some good notes and, you know, we had to discuss other ones and that's how it was. She trusted me. I had known her for quite a while, as I mentioned. And when she decided to sit down in the chair, she knew she was giving up control of the, you know, creative. So, um, and she's obviously worked with many directors in her career. So she, you know, she looked at me as a filmmaker and she let me make the final decision on things. Um, but, you know, she's so 
she's also a great storyteller and she brought some great things, some great notes to the table. So what was your sort of level of trepidation when you're finally sitting down and screening it for her after having, you know, cut for a year or however long it is like what to describe that scene? Gosh, it's, you know, when you, I guess we weren't in the same city. So it was like, I was probably biting my nails in Los Angeles while she was somewhere else. But, um, I was really confident in the cut. I feel like we, you know, we told the story we set out to tell, um, but I was nervous, of course. And there were, you know, there were things with her family and, you know, there, there were statements that she made that I knew would ruffle some feathers. So I, you know, I didn't know how she was going to um, deal with that, but she was, she was, she wanted to tell the truth. That was Evan's thing. She wanted to tell the truth. And she came back and she was, you know, the notes were positive. It wasn't like, oh my God, I want out. Let's, you know, there were, she definitely, you know, she watched it a couple of times. I think, you know, as she watched it, more things would come up, but you know, I think it was a positive reaction and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was definitely nervous. You're right. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. What's your, how do you deal with notes in general, be it, you know, notes from Evan in this case, notes from HBO, like what is your process for dealing with notes? Um, HBO is great in that they don't give you notes until you're ready. Like they give you enough time to edit before they start chiming in. Um, they usually have great notes. They're usually about clarity. Um, they know their audience probably better than most of us. So um, I'm, I'm good with notes. Like I, I know that once I am at a certain point in screening footage and watching cuts that I, my bias changes and I'm, you know, I need outside perspective. So I love getting good notes. Um, but we, you know, we were in line about the structure from pretty early on in the process. So it was more about clarity and making sure that, um, and relatability, you know, because this was about domestic violence, you know, and so it, was, it wasn't like, just a portrait piece. It was about domestic violence and we wanted to make sure that there was a new understanding and education on domestic violence. What was the legal like on this? I, w I imagine it must have been like insanely complicated, particularly dealing with the Manson archive, with the audio book. Like how do you go about, what was that process and how uh, intense was it? And how did you, how did you, how did you, how did you make it through? I mean, I cannot thank Alonzo Wickers enough. I've been working with him since Deliver Us From Evil. He's my attorney and uh, we were lockstep with him pretty much every, way more than any other film I've made. So it's- For, So from the jump, as you're deciding what to include, yeah, what we yeah, can yeah. include, what we can't, what, what the liabilities and risks mm -hmm. are. So we were, he knew everything that was corroborated he didn't let us use anything that wasn't corroborated. I mean, it was like really, it was a lot of legal. And HBO has their team as well. So then they collaborate together. So it's great, you know, so. And how much of the investigative work in terms of corroboration are you guys doing versus the legal team doing versus Wickers in that case? Well, we know what we have to do and then we show him what we've done. So it's kind of like we have to keep things quite in line and, the producers did a great job with that on this film. You know, they were always behind the scenes getting double corroboration on everything that we wanted to tell in the story. <clears throat> what about the use of the audiobook, which I thought was a, you know, brilliant uh, and effective mm -hmm. choice? Like how, 
how like do you have to get his like like how does that work well we didn't use the audiobook we had an actor read the lines from his book so i guess we used the book so um there was an audiobook um but uh no we didn't it's that's a public record now he's a public um, He's person. a public figure, yeah. so it's mm-hmm. essentially public mm-hmm. domain to 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 use mm-hmm. it. And did you um, did you ever consider attempting to? I mean, there's the the, the kind of um, you know disclaimer at the end, but like, do, how much did you consider early on in this? Like, hey, is there any way he will ever sit down for this? Do we want to, or was that not really? Uh, what was your what was your thought process going in? I mean, like I said, I wasn't making a Marilyn Manson film. It it turned into that in the edit, and then we did reach out to him at the point where um, we saw what was happening. Uh, I felt that he defended himself in the film or he spoke for himself through the materials we had. I mean, those were not disputable at all. Um, so, I, I, you know, I obviously he wasn't planning on sitting down with us and we never had that opportunity, um, but we felt that we were representing his truth in his own words. So it, it, it seemed balanced in that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a, there's so many, um, you are constantly contending with, in you know, in all of your work, these foundational kind of ethical choices, um, and it's uh, it's it's inspiring to see the elegance and um, smarts with which you navigate. Because this is like this is not easy. Yeah. This is tough subject matter, yeah. and, and you've been doing it a long time. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of take. Um the idea that abuse is non-negotiable, seriously. I mean, there is there is a line. Of course, there is a fine line. There are people that claim they were abused that maybe weren't abused. But this is like pretty. It was in all the films I've made. It's just it's been pretty clear um, what has happened, and so that's I'm looking at the abuse, not like the. Um, hit piece. I'm not looking to do a hit piece. I'm looking to like try to explore how culturally grooming happens, how people get into these positions. Like, you know, the the stories that we've heard about Brian's relationships and just how he like, okay, like he's the starvation tactic is one that really stuck with me. It's such a string. I mean, it's, it's makes so much sense, sleep deprivation and starvation. But we've heard stories from all these people about how he will not let his partners eat. And then he'll like eat like, I don't remember the numbers, like 23 tacos from Del Taco in front of his current partner and his band, you know, has witnessed this. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a, I guess this is like a smart tactic for a person who is um, maintaining control over another person, but that, and then like sleep deprivation and, you know, all these kinds of grooming um, tactics that really work. You know, and so we wanted to just make sure that people understood that you're not really in your right mind. It's like when you hear about somebody um, giving a false confession in a police interrogation and they've been in there for 18 hours. They haven't they haven't eaten anything. They haven't slept. And they're finally just like, okay, what do you want me to say? And it's it is that same type of grooming that's happening um, in this story. So I just wanted to make sure that people understood what the warning signs were when I heard about it. It's just so disturbing. It's incredibly disturbing. Um, I'd love to finish with a, 
I guess, kind of a personal question, if you don't mind my asking, Uh-oh. but why why have you been so driven to and drawn by these stories? I mean, you do it so brilliantly, but it must take a toll on you as a human being. Like, what is it in you that has sent you on this path? I mean, uh, okay, I always wanted to elevate the voice of the underdog. And I have to say, like, it's kind of, when I made Deliver Us From Evil, I remember hearing a statistic about um, high-risk offenders. It was something like 95% of people, the high-risk offenders in the California prison system had been sexually abused as children. And it's not like I stepped into making a film about the West Memphis Three to expect to see a bunch of sexual abuse. It's not like I stepped into making a film about the FLDS in Utah and expected to mm-hmm. be sexual, to explore sexual abuse. But it's, see, I'm always interested in systemic abuse. And it seems to be the weapon that's been used over the past, you know, generations. And so it kind of, it's good to highlight that because it's a cycle that hasn't disappeared. Um, If you're asking me personally, I I was sexually abused as a teenager and it did affect my life. And I actually like didn't even realize it was statutory rape until I saw a documentary at one point and realized that I was 17 and this person was like 25. And like, you know, it's just one of those things that you like don't realize it. It's right in front of you, but you don't realize it until like it hits you on the head. Um, But that probably offers me a level of empathy towards people that I have documented over the years. Um, But I I can't say that that was what was driving it. I, I, cause I happen on it in every film. It just seems to be there, you know, and um, it's probably the epidemic nature of the phenomenon, really, it, it, in that sense. It's like wherever you go chasing these stories, there's the monster rearing its head again. Right. But in each of these stories, the monster is not just the predator. It's the institution. And that's the thing. That, the, yeah, system. the system. Systemic abuse is the root of all evil, I think. And so that's where I I'm going because I feel, you know, because like I said earlier, Oliver O'Grady was abused when he was 11. So, you know, his story is important as well because it didn't start with, and the person who abused him was probably abused by a priest when he was 11. So it just, it just keeps going on. It's this weapon. Um, Yeah. So I I don't know. It's just like my um, friend said something to me the other day about how there, how no man cannot be, turned on when they're holding a gun and it just like i there i keep thinking about this line that like the power of the you know the power of the power is what's driving this and how do we stop this cycle you know that's the question for the future and i hope to you know i hope to see a shift in the narrative publicly as we talk about that because it's easy to cancel people and it's easy to call out and it's not easy to call out and say I was abused, this happened to me. I'm sorry, I should not have said that. That's, it's one of the most difficult things to come forward and say, this happened to me too. But when we start to recognize that the predator is also a victim, then we can hopefully start educating. Thank you, my dog is moving again on the, yeah. on the little um, bean back here. But that, little, I mean, little that's a little cameo, cameo there at the end. from Lenny. But that's the conversation that needs to happen is like, how do we stop the cycle? And I, I was so interested in that with Oliver O'Grady. I'm sorry, I know we were just wrapping up. But he was in a he was in a rehabilitation center at one point. The mm-hmm. church had sent him there, and that probably would have been the safest place to keep him. Because when I found him, he was living in a family's house with a young child. So, you know, I, I don't know, you know, what's going on with that conversation. But it started when people started coming out, and I, I just would like to 
know about the rehabilitation of sexual predators, um, because that's super important, obviously, to this narrative. Well, you've spent a life, um, I would say, already contributing to the shift in the culture. And it's the doing of this work and the connecting with the audience, like this is how change happens. And in your work, the potency of story as you know, medicine for the culture, I think is like, is undeniable. So, so thank you for being out there and thank you for the work you do. I think it's really amazing. Thank you so much. It's, let's hope there, there's a shift in the culture with law enforcement. That's what I really hope to see, um, next. So. Amen. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate your time it today. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you as well. One of the, one of these days, hopefully we'll have a chance to sit down in person. Great. Okay. Ciao. <laughs> Thank you, Bye-bye. Amy. Bye-bye. Thank you to Amy Berg for sharing her time with us. And thank you to Evan Rachel Wood for her bravery in sharing her story and doing her part to make it a better world. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydapunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.